Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we look behind the curtain to expose the sneaky special interests pulling the levers and crafting the messages in our current foreign policy discourse. We'll be talking today to Bob Wright, who wrote an amazing post about the think tanks behind all of the tactical Russia-Ukraine information we're getting in the mainstream news. But first, let's talk about the sanctions that the West put on Russia for the last three and a half months since the invasion of Ukraine. According to new reports and analysis, those sanctions, the toughest in the history of sanctions, are not quite having the desired effect, at least not yet. Uh, the Associated Press reported this week that India and other Asian nations are becoming an increasingly vital source of oil revenues for Moscow, despite pressure from the U.S. and the West not to increase their purchases. Such sales are boosting Russian export revenues, not killing them as the West had hoped. Russia has benefited from the spike in oil and gas prices. The Wall Street Journal also reported this week that Russia's central bank cut its key interest rates to the level it was when the country invaded Ukraine in late February in a sign that the economy is weathering some of the pain caused by these Western sanctions. Explaining the move, the central bank said inflation in Russia, that is, said inflation has started to fall back from a post-invasion surge sooner than it expected, thanks in large part to the ruble's rebound, and that the economy may have not contracted as much year over year as anticipated. In the American conservative this week, Dimitri Symes, uh, who is a son of the head of the national interest here in Washington um, and is closely associate, associated in, with Moscow, I believe he lives there, uh, wrote this, quote, although Western-led sanctions undoubted, undoubtedly initially caused the Russian ruble to plummet and many ordinary Russians to visibly panic, over three months later, the economic situation in the country appears much calmer. None of this is to say that tumultuous Walters are not ahead for the Russian economy. However, following three decades as part of the globalized economy, Russia will have to completely restructure its supply and production chains away from the West and do so rapidly. So he goes on basically to say the jury is out. We don't know if these sanctions are ultimately going to hurt uh, the Russian economy, but there are some signs that um, uh, innovation is actually ex uh, uh, expressing itself in Russia now because of the, the competition is left. Um, Russian ma manufacturers and designers, um, producers are finding finding ways um, to to um, you know produce their products, explore new ways of getting around sanctions, um, so that. Right now, they haven't seen the crippling effect of these embargoes. Um, my question is, you know, um, if they're not having the desired effect right now, um, how are they going to end the war? Um, we see the rebounding effect on us, on the, uh, the American economy. We see the effect on the global economy, which is in a serious crisis right now. Um, did we make a mistake by imposing these sanctions, Dan? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think in, in general, it is a mistake to impose broad sanctions against an, uh, an entire economy. Uh, first of all, because we know from long experience that broad sanctions will tend to produce more of the behavior that they're meant to punish or they're meant to d discourage, uh, for one. And, and for another, it inflicts a lot of 
punishment on uh, ordinary people uh, rather than on the policymakers and the decision makers who are responsible for the actions that prompt the sanctions in the first place. And and we see that uh, we've seen that in the Iran example. We've seen it with Venezuela. The, the difference with the Russian case, though, is you're now dealing with a much larger economy, an economy that's tied in to to dozens and dozens of other countries around the world. And so, and of course, it produces commodities that are extremely valuable to the rest of the world, uh, so that it, when you create uncertainty about access to that market uh, or the ability to to do business with that country, uh, it it drives up prices. it It creates a lot of uh, hoarding, a lot of panicking. Uh, and and of course, it creates lots of sanctions busting. Uh, one, one of the reasons that sanctions tend to be ineffective over the long term is that there are lots and lots of countries that don't want to participate in the sanctions regime, uh, and they try to find ways to get around it. Uh, they they don't agree with the U.S. and its allies uh, in imposing them in the first place uh, because they see it as inimical to their own interests. Uh, we we've seen that with uh, certainly with India. We see it with a lot of countries in Africa that are, of course, very heavily dependent on uh, the grain that is coming out of Ukraine and Russia for their food supplies. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're willing to you know, sort of look the other way when it comes to Russia's uh, egregious violations and, and aggression because uh, their, their own immediate interests dictate that they, they kind of have to. Uh, and so you have, I think there was a story that just came out today about a possible uh, trade channel being set up through running through Iran uh, between Russia and India as a way of provide bringing grain to India because of course they they're suffering from a huge drought uh, on top of everything else which is severely affecting their own wheat supply and that gives them an added incentive to, to take wheat from Russia so uh, I, I think for for broad sanctions to work, and to work quickly in the way that I think some of the advocates of these sanctions hoped might happen, you really need universal global buy-in to the sanctions regime, and you're simply not going to get that, uh, especially today, uh, and especially when you're dealing with a major power like Russia that has the ability to retaliate and and penalize states that side against them. And so I, I think, in general, waging economic war on this scale is a bad idea for, for the reasons we've talked about. Uh, and it's also not going to produce uh, any better outcomes, uh, whether for Ukraine or for anyone else. And so I, you know, I think that's lo- longer term, we have to think about scaling these back, uh, not, not least because of the, the inflationary effects it's having on our own economy. Uh, it, it can't be in the best interests of the US and its allies to drive everybody into a recession. And and I mean, if that sounds, if that sounds sort of self-interested, I mean, I suppose it is, but then that's that's sort of the point. We, we do have to actually look after our own interests as well. We can't, we can't be prepared to sacrifice American and allied interests in perpetuity for the sake of another country that we don't actually have obligations to. And so that's that's the the issue that we have to really focus on and, and and prioritize the interests of the U.S. and its allies uh, first and foremost. And, and I think in that case, that means that the sanctions regime does have to come down sooner than later. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it is, it is about U.S. interests. And I think at the beginning of the war, I know at the beginning of the war, the message makers, the spin doctors had made uh, these tough sanctions out to be 
um, a something that would uh, cause Russia to rethink the invasion immediately, as though these these sanctions would have um, a um, a quick, sharp, severe impact on the Russian economy, so much so that it would turn around and leave. Now, did did our leadership say that? No, but the implication was there. Uh, now we are three and a half, nearly four months into the invasion, and we're starting to see signs, like I mentioned at, at the beginning of the segment, that those sanctions haven't kicked in fully yet. In terms of kicked in, I mean the effect. So the jury is out in terms of, of, of what effect it will have long term. And I think that the American conservative piece that I mentioned by Dimitri Symes uh, is really good uh, because it is free of a lot of the bias that you're seeing in the mainstream press. Um, but it's also pretty clear eyed too. And it, it you know it quotes um, a bunch of, of Russian economists and uh, who are who who do warn that um, uh, in time um, the the Russian people are going to feel the pinch more so than that they're seeing right now, and that might tide turn the tide of public opinion there. Um, but it will also you know um, will have an overall effect on contracting the the economy. But where does that put us now? Right now, that has not had, had it is not crippling um, the Russian advance into Eastern uh, 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 Ukraine um, and actually achieving some of its, its, its goals in this, in this war. Um, all it's doing is adding to a global recession right now. Um, and in terms of the American impact, uh, Americans are going to the pump and they're seeing $5 average um, dollar a, ga a gallon gas. Um, in New York City, it's $7 a gallon at this point. Um, they're seeing the prices um, at, the, at the grocery stores shoot up, uh, rent, medical care. I mean, you name it, everything is going up. And so you're seeing the actual support for this, um, for this war and the money and the weapons we're sending over there and ultimately the sanctions kind of tamp down. Because it, you know, it, it it is about American interests, and um, I'm sorry, but the Biden administration is looking at this election in, in November, and that's why they're trying to explain this inflation away as the Putin price hike. But really, it's their short-sighted sanctions regime. It's not all responsible, but in large part responsible for all all, all the pain we're feeling um, in our pocketbooks right now. Well, and that's the thing that. It is really driven home when we look at we look at the price of oil, for instance, and then we look at where, where we which countries we're sanctioning. You know, specifically sanctioning on in the oil sector, you you have Venezuela and Iran that have uh, potentially huge capacity they could bring on the market uh, legitimately uh, if we took away those oil sanctions. But for various political reasons, we refuse to lift them. Uh, that you know that that's a place where U.S. policy could actually make a, a really positive difference in in terms of lowering the overall price of oil and helping to curb some of this inflation, uh, and that th those are the policies that were not being that are not being considered. Uh, instead, uh, that there's this yes, an attempt to blame Russia for for creating the problem, uh, but but really no interest in finding any other avenues for. Uh, trying to to bring the inflation down. I guess there is some discussion now of trying to end some of the tariffs that Trump hiked on China as a way to try to to bring down some of these prices. Uh, but but it seems like even that is 
unlikely to happen in the near term uh, because there, there's this tremendous resistance to doing anything that can be spun as uh, being favorable to one of these other countries. Right. And so we, you know, we, if we, oh, if we lift oil sanctions on Venezuela, that rewards Maduro. And so we can't do that, even if it would actually help us. And so we, we end up getting locked into these sanctions regimes that, that are actually harmful to our own interests, uh, both, both medium and long term. And, and they're not achieving anything otherwise. It's not like it's not like there's a trade-off between achieving certain policy goals and suffering some economic pain in the meantime. We're not getting the policy goals either. We're 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 getting worse outcomes on the policy front uh, while still suffering the economic pain, and and so it's it, it's clearly self-defeating. Uh, you know, it, if if I had my way, we we would be out of the business of waging economic war on other countries uh, altogether. But you know that's that's a long ways off. Our guest today is Bob Wright. He is the author of Non-Zero: The Moral Animal, The Evolution of God, and Why Buddhism Is True. He's also co-founder of Blogging Heads and author of the Non-Zero newsletter on Substack, and he hosts his own podcast, The Right Show. Welcome back to the show, Bob. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, yeah, we're uh, looking forward to talking to you again. Uh, you, you just wrote a piece recently on your newsletter uh, about uh, American uses of propaganda and the role of think tanks in shaping how the public understands what's happening in the world. Uh, you note that American propaganda is more subtle and less obvious than propaganda in countries with state-run media, and that makes it easier to miss the propaganda when it shows up. Uh, so what are some of the examples of, uh, examples of this that you found? Well, the piece, you know, I, I think the whole thing about American propaganda, if you want to call it that, again, it, it's different from Russian propaganda in kind of its structure. But but the thing about it is it's harder to see. And this first kind of got my attention when I was listening to this podcast, Russians with Attitude, uh, that it, you know, I, I try to make a point of listening to voices from the other side in general, whether that means Trump supporters or supporters of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And so I listened to these guys and they were complaining about how Americans, the only the difference between Americans and Russians is the Russians at least understand that there is propaganda in Russia. And they, they kind of a lot of them take the kind of prevailing narrative with a grain of salt. Americans don't. So that got me thinking about how propaganda works in America. And of course, I had noticed in the course of this war, as tends to happen during war, there is a kind of received narrative that gets uh, promulgated. And in, 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 in this case, it was kind of the pro-Ukrainian narrative. And I should say, I do consider Ukraine the victim. Russia invaded a sovereign country and so on. So in that sense, they have my Ukraine has my support. But the fact is, it does lead to kind of what you could call biased reporting in America and in effect, a kind of a propagandistic story. So I started thinking about, well, how, how exactly does this happen? And why is it harder to perceive if it is in America than in Russia? And I decided it's because America is this pluralistic place, right? There, there are a lot of different media outlets. There's a lot of different think tanks. There's, you know, and, and, uh, and so there are all of these different voices. And so it kind of 
it could give one the illusion that there isn't a received narrative when in fact there often is. And I think war is a good example of that. So I started looking into, you know, kind of the reporting and mainstream media outlets. And uh, one thing I noticed is that there was an extreme amount of reliance on one think tank, the Institute for the Study of War. And that became the focus of this particular piece. Uh, ISW had succeeded in presenting itself as a kind of impartial reporter on the war and analyst of the war. And so the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, they all relied on it as such. You know, I, I, I wrote this piece, I guess I posted it originally like the 6th of June, and I, I counted up the stories and saw that that there were at least 10 stories just in the first six days of the month, at least 10 stories from one of those three outlets that cited ISW as this source and attributed certain information or analysis to it. And now, as you know, being veterans uh, of veteran blob watchers, ISW is not an impartial source of anything, right? It's, it's the Institute for the Study of War was founded by neocons and is supported heavily by defense industry money. And, um, and, and so one, you would hope that one would take it with a, what it says with a grain of salt, especially if one were a reporter, one of these sophisticated outlets like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Turns out it's not the case. Let me, let me just give you um, one example of, of, of how kind of subtly this works. And, and I, I want to emphasize it really is subtle. ISW is good at what it does, right? It, it's like, you know, one might not notice the bias in this, but, but, but here it is. So it's a paragraph from the Wall Street Journal. Quote, Ukrainian forces in the south near Kherson conducted a successful counteroffensive over the weekend, according to the Institute for the Study of War. Though they were unlikely to retake more territory, they might force Russia to deploy more resources to the region, unquote. So wait a second. They're calling a counteroffensive that took zero territory successful. Now, it's not impossible if that's the case. It could have been that its purpose is just to divert Russian resources. That's possible. But, but there is no way you would ever hear ISW refer to a Russian counteroffensive that took no territory as successful. I assure you, you can comb their vast archives and they put out a lot of stuff. They put out these impressive daily reports and these maps. I can see how if I'm a journalist, I would find them handy. But it really is disturbing to me that these journalists at our finest publications seem completely unaware. E even when the example they're using should kind of have a little bit of a red flag if they pay close attention. You know, these people are calling uh, a seemingly failed offensive successful. Um, they, they, they seem just unaware. That, that, that to me is the most alarming thing about this. Erwan, when I was reading your piece about that, I, I was having sort of flashbacks to some of the debates we've had about Iran policy where you see uh, very hardline think tanks being asked for quotes about policy debates or about administration policy, uh, and, and they're being quoted as 
as though they're neutral experts when, of course, they have a very large stake in the fight. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, whose uh, members will often be cited uh, as a sort of the, the go-to quote uh, from the, the hawkish side of the debate, but it's always cast as uh, simply these these experts providing their uh, their analysis, and and you know this is sort of the way it is, uh, and then so there's no disclosure of the agenda of the organization. There's no disclosure of the the background or the the leanings of the organization for the most part, uh, so the the audience has no way of of judging what these where these claims are coming from, and I, and I feel like that's that's what you're talking about when you talk about the, the subtle propaganda. Um, how can an audience judge the claims made in these reports uh, when they aren't informed about the background of the people that are being cited as authorities? Yeah, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies is very much like the Institute for the Study of War in, this, in the sense that, that they do a good job of the kind of the dual track game. On the one hand, they do the thing that we know that think tanks do. They have people who write op-eds, express opinions, do policy advocacy. Um, but they also do this thing where they become known as reliable sources of information and analysis. Um, I did a piece for The Intercept several years ago called, if I recall correctly, How the New York Times is Making War with Iran More Likely. And I just did a deep dive into one New York Times piece and, and that relied heavily on FDD. And remember, FDD, among its donors, is the late Sheldon Adelson, who once seriously proposed dropping a nuclear bomb on Iran. Now, in fairness to him, he said, just drop it in the desert. We don't want to kill anybody. Right. Just show them we mean business. But he wanted to do it like tomorrow. He wasn't going to wait for some new provocation. Okay, this is one of their funders. And uh, and the New York Times uh, was was taking them as this serious uh, source of analysis. And, you know, the little little story that, that uh, I an encounter I had that I that I found alarming along these lines. I was talking to an NPR foreign correspondent, longtime correspondent. I suspect you'd recognize her name, but it was a private conversation. So I don't want to divulge it. Um, and I said, uh, I, I, I was talking, she and I were both addressing a seminar of, of students at, at Princeton, and uh, I got into FDD and did my little rap about how people don't understand, you know, this is, this is not an impartial source. And it was like, first alarming thing is it was news to her. And, 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 and she said, oh, wow, I guess, yeah, that kind of explains why they're sometimes kind of hawkish. And then she said, oh, well, you know, whenever I've I've quoted them in the past, you know, I've also quoted somebody from Brookings, you know, like as if, right? Brook, I mean, you're laughing, Daniel, as you yeah. should, because we know that that Brookings played a large role in getting us into the Iraq War, and 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 have had a series of of funders who who uh, seem favorably disposed to various wars. Uh, so I just. And again, I think you'd recognize this person's name. And, 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 and their, their job was to cover foreign affairs for NPR, the Middle East specifically. And I, I, don't, I honestly don't know how to account for it. I, I mean, I was once a newspaper and a journalist, and there was a, a journalist in a newspaper. It was a very small newspaper, inconsequential newspaper. But the kind of official journalistic attitude was one of skepticism and cynicism. It's like, 
your job was to find out like where is the power who's pulling the strings and i just worry that there may be a younger crop of journalists who is either not asking these questions or asking them very selectively i don't know well i I think one of the problems that we run into uh, in in a lot of reporting especially on foreign policy stuff at least that i've noticed is that there's a, a great willingness to take arguments that that are made by some of these think tank uh, people uh, at, at face value, or they're, they're taken as good faith arguments, as as if well, whatever they're saying on the surface is, is the end of it, and that's all that they that's all that needs to be reported. There's no need for context, or there's no need to compare what they're saying now against what they said a few years ago, uh, and so there, there's a I guess a reluctance to call out bad faith arguments when you see them. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's, if that's the problem or if it's something else. Uh, we, we mentioned Brookings just now, of course, uh, Brookings is very much in the news because of the role uh, that their, their now former president, uh, former general uh, Allen uh, played in uh, lobbying on their behalf during the uh, ill-fated Saudi blockade of uh, Qatar. And, uh, he, I guess, he personally was involved in, in taking, or allegedly involved in taking uh, payments from them, uh, in, you know, on the side, in addition to whatever he was doing at Brookings. Uh, and uh, of course, Brookings was, received a lot of funding from Qatar as well, uh, which you know has sort of inevitably shaped their take on on some of the regional issues uh, that we've been talking about over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, and so, that, and that, so your your piece about propaganda, I think, brought a, a closer attention or more attention to a, a real problem that a lot of modern think tanks have, uh, which is that they can be captured by their funders or they can be influenced by their funders to such a degree that it ends up distorting uh, the kinds of analysis they do. Um, do you think there are reforms in transparency and reporting that can reduce that problem? Uh, and, and do you think we should ban donations from foreign governments on principle? It's a good question. Um, you know, and I should say that my view of the way this works is it, it, it's not that the people at the think tanks, you know, the analysts and the opiners are, uh, are being consciously dishonest necessarily or, or, or saying things they don't believe because they're being paid to. I think by and large, you know, the think tanks just, hire people who actually believe the things that the funders want promulgated. And so I, I, I don't really want to question the integrity of the average person working at a think tank. Um, but yeah, it, I, I think more transparency would, would be a good thing. Um, you know, of course, a certain amount of this stuff comes to light anyway, and it doesn't seem to make a huge difference. Um, thanks to the work of people that, well, you know, Eli Clifton, you know, people who investigate the funding of these think tankers, uh, these think tanks, a certain amount of it comes to light. Uh, and, you know, it's funny in the case of Cotter. Well, actually, that was a team I was rooting for at that point, kind of in the, in the sense that, you know, they were fighting against this ridiculous Saudi blockade that, that, that Jared Kushner was in favor of and stuff. Uh, but, um, but, I, I guess the other thing I'd say is, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I respect think tanks that say they that, that refuse to take foreign money, for example, uh, and arms uh, money. And uh, I don't exactly know the, the 
Quincy Institute's formal guidelines, but I, they may do both of those things as, 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 a, as a formal matter. I'm, I'm pretty sure they do the first of those. And that's great. Um, the uh, one, one thing I worry about when there's, uh, when I hear conversations about foreign influences, I mean, I think they're fine insofar as they go. I wouldn't want people to think that that's the end of the problem. There are so many domestic interest groups, you know, uh, that, that, that bias uh, our perception of things in various ways, including the arms industry, the various kind of special uh, lobbies, uh, you know, the Cuba lobby, the Israel lobby, the, the uh, I, I guess NATO expansion had something to do with the perception that uh, Eastern uh, voters of Eastern European extraction in certain areas were very supportive of it. There's now a Venezuelan lobby, a Venezuela lobby, apparently. Um, so uh, there's the problem is is really pervasive. But yeah, I, I'd be in favor of of uh, more in the way of government mandates for transparency. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Bob. I'm really excited uh, to have you on the show again. Uh, I have to say, I love your article, uh, Propaganda American Style, I think it was uh, headlined in Non-Zero. Uh, please, listeners, check it out because we're not able to do it justice just on this program right now in terms of, of, of the breadth and the, the depth of the piece. I just want to go back to it for a second. Um, you know, a few of the younger people in my orbit uh, who are unfamiliar with the Institute for the Study of War um, seemed, when they read your piece, were a little skeptical. You know, okay, um, you know, we un they understand that the propaganda that you're talking about is more nuanced, but some of the pushback that I've gotten is, well, you know, everybody goes after the Kagan family. You know, this particular think tank was started by Kimberly Kagan. She's married to Fred Kagan. He is a brother of Robert Kagan. They are the sons of Donald Kagan. And somehow this is all guilt by association. Just because they're all married and, 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 they're, and they're all family doesn't mean that there's some uh, cabal. I, I push my personally push against that because I feel like there's more to the story. And I was one in, in terms of their influence on mm -hmm. American foreign policy, get, going back to Iraq and maybe today in this think tank. And um, and we know Robert Kagan still writing about, you know, global intervention and, in, and internationalism and and whatnot. And uh, so I was wondering if you can get a little bit into why um, this this sort of juggernaut of like Kagans, I call them the flying Kagans. You mentioned somebody <laughs> mentions, calls them the you know, Kagan industrial project or something like that. But can you just maybe explain to um, our, our listeners what the, the threat is from this family? <laughs> yeah, the, the looming <laughs> Kagan threat. I mean, I, I, was, I was a little ambivalent actually about getting into it for that reason. I, 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 I don't believe in guilt by familial relationship, you know, so I don't think, uh, you, you know, just because uh, Kimberly Kagan is married to Fred Kagan, who's the brother of Bob Kagan, we should infer from that that Kimberly Kagan is a neoconservative. But the fact is, all these people are independently on the record. I, I mean, they've all expressed views. We, 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 
we, you know, not all families agree on foreign policy. This one does. Okay. So, um, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, and I should say in fairness, Bob no longer calls himself a neoconservative. Okay. Well, he's a hawk. Let's just call him a hawk. Um, but look, uh, there, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, uh, it should, you know, the, the, it should not be off limits to point to, to uh, cohesive networks of people who have influence. And Bob Kagan um, was, you know, along with Bill Crystal, who was on the board of, I, of ISW, did the project for a new American century, which a lot of reasonable people think was a very influential neoconservative project funded by the defense industry. And, um, and, it, and it did play some role in getting us into the Iraq war. And I, I'm, I'm not going to quit talking about it. I, I mean, uh, the, um, so, you know, again, these people are independently on the record. The, the, there's no doubt about what ISW is up to. It's a very hawkish organization. Um, you know, I feel kind of the same way. I, I also mentioned Victoria Newland, if we want to round out oh, the family exactly. profile. We didn't mention who, her. Who is, of course, the wife of Bob Kagan. And of course, uh, and, and, you know, her record is a little thinner because she's been in government. She doesn't go around spouting off a lot. But we do know that she got very involved in the Ukraine revolution of 2014. And um, I think in an unfortunate way, personally, and I think to an extent that American officials should not be involved. You know, she... You know, you've you've all heard the uh, the excerpts of the phone call that apparently the Russians taped that uh, she was part of, along with the she was a State Department official. There was the American uh, the American ambassador to Ukraine she was talking to, and they were basically deciding who who was going to lead the successor government right. after a revolution or what some people would call a coup. And and turned out the person they chose got the job. And, and I mean, they were proactive. The idea was, okay, well, I'll call so-and-so and kind of explain that they're not going to get the job. I mean, seriously. And, 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 uh, and, and what was it? We'll get Biden in to give him an attaboy or something. And they mention, I think they mentioned Jake Sullivan. They'll have to bring in an international official to kind of give it this. So I, I, I don't want to, um, you know, I am not among the people who calls this a coup. I mean, I'm agnostic, revolution, coup, whatever. And, and I don't, I'm not saying it was uh, orchestrated by the U.S., but I am saying I don't think that, that the job of ambassadors to countries is, is to, in any sense, abet regime change. I think it's to deal with the regime you find, A. And B, I think whether or not this is a coup, we should be mindful of the fact that from Vladimir Putin's point of view, it kind of looks like one. It kind of looks like a Western-sponsored coup. And given and, and, and naturally, his first thought after that is going to be, wait, what about our naval base in Crimea, which is very important to us? If, if we have just seen a Western-backed coup and we now have uh, you know, a, a, a hostile government in power, should I do something about that? we should have understood that what we were doing would be perceived in a way that would actually increase the chances of Crimea being seized. And 
I, this is a tangent from the propaganda thing. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. But at the same time, it isn't because uh, how much coverage have you seen in the mainstream media of what I think was a very important U.S. intervention here? Intervention in some sense of the word. It just doesn't get talked about. It doesn't get talked about. And it doesn't get talked about that Victoria Nuland is now in our current government. So she right. she she uh, was orchestrating everything that you had just mentioned in the Biden administration. And now she is our uh, she's a top State Department official uh, for this region in the Biden administration. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we need to talk about it. And I do feel like it's connected. And just going back to, to the Kagan's. I mean, we have to recall that Kimberly Kagan started the Institute for the Study of War during the Iraq War. And mm-hmm. at the same time, she and her husband were advisors to Donald Petraeus or David Petraeus during the surge. And Fred Kagan, her husband, was a co-author of the surge. Uh, I forget what the Dan might uh, remember, but it was an actual policy paper that I believe was produced by AEI, of which... Kagan was a fellow, um, and 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 in concert with um, former General Jack Keane, who is the chairman of the board at ISW. So these mm-hmm. things are so interconnected. These people are, and their influence on our foreign policy. Um, to say that they are hawkish is one thing, but I believe that they they have an outsized influence on. Um, government policy, maybe not so much as they did during the Iraq war. Um, but, you know, most people are associating ISW with the great maps and on the ground uh, tactical sort of reportage of, um, you know, Syria, now uh, Ukraine. But I think what your article does is it, it highlights that there are all these other factors that are going into um, how they're reporting these things and it, it may be subtle, but it's a it's a confirmation bias almost at work here. And like like you point out, we don't know where the influence of their their defense contracting supporters, of which they take a lot of defense money, um, or all of the influence, their political influence, um, how that is playing into all of their reporting. And right. certainly the reporters who are passing along this information and using it incessantly aren't, you know, aren't mindful of this, or if they are, they're not disclosing it. They, they, they don't seem to be. Uh, and, you know, the, the broad problem is just that um, overwhelmingly, the money that goes into influencing American foreign policy is on the hawkish side, right? There just, there just aren't many big corporations who just see themselves as having just a vital commercial interest in military restraint. I mean, I think a lot of them in the long run kind of do because a peaceful, engaged world is, is probably a more prosperous world for them. But, but, it, but they don't have the incentive structure that like General Dynamics has where like this is critical. This piece of foreign policy is critical to our bottom line, you know. Um, and uh, so, you know, foreign policy, because most Americans don't care much about it unless, you know, it's like Vietnam and Americans are coming home in body bags. The field is left open to intensely motivated interest groups. And most of those have 
some kind of hawkish policy they favor, whether it's military action, arms buildup, sanctions. That's the generic problem. It's not just about one family. One family is an example uh, of, the, of the larger problem. I, yeah, I, I think that sums it up very well, Bob. Uh, thanks uh, for coming on the show. Uh, I'm afraid we run out of time, but uh, we look forward to having you back again. And uh, everyone, uh, check out uh, his non-zero newsletter on Substack. Uh, Bob Wright, thanks. Well, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy the, the podcast, so keep up the good work. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.